One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dance Nose History. I'm enjoying my first day of... Voluntary isolation in my own home, which for a podcast host and occasional writer feels much like a normal day. Except this time I've got children at home. Actually, I've got my youngest, Orla, on my lap now. How are you doing, Orla? Good. I'm just doing perfect. She... Blah, blah, blah. Well, perfect, I think, is an exaggeration. I think Orla has inherited the Snow Family broadcasting hyperbolic tendency. But she's behaving adequately, let's just say that. Adequately, Ola. How about that? I'm adequately. Blah, right. blah, blah. Right. So I like the way she ends everything in. I like the way you end everything in blah, blah, blah. That's, that's what you think your daddy does for a living. And actually, sometimes I think she's probably right. Um, if you wish to go and take advantage of our unbelievable sale on historyhit.tv, new programmes being added all the time, spent... Monday, just before the lockdown, filming at Windsor Castle. Some great programmes there for you to, to watch when they come out on historyhit.tv. Uh, you can go and use the code POD3, POD3. You get a month for free, and then you get three months for just one pound, euro, or dollar for each of those three months. And frankly, who knows where we're going to be in four months' time, everyone. So that doesn't sound like a bad trade. You can now watch the World's Best History Channel for four months for just three pounds, euros, or dollars by using the code POD3HistoryHitTV. You will see interviews such as this one. I recorded this interview with Ed West just as the coronavirus was getting into its stride. We discussed his political affiliation, which was somewhat unusual for some of his generation. He's an avowed conservative, and we had a, a fun chat about why he thinks conservatives are right, but perhaps also why they're destined to keep losing. His book, Small Men on the Wrong Side of History, is out now. Uh, enjoy this podcast. Please go and check out historyhit.tv and use the code POD3. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. This is an unfashionable. You're self-identifying a conservative. Yeah. You're a young, otherwise normal millennial guy. What is a conservative? Uh, I should say I'm actually just the last the last year's a generation X, but yeah, I'm yeah, fairly so young. So am I, but let's um, I, yes, I suppose the, the, the point of my book was a form of self-therapy in a way because most of my contemporaries, my age group, are obviously of, of the centre-left, progressive-left, university-educated, London-based... And um, I've always been slightly different. And as I've got older, I've always been a bit more conservative. But as I've got older, I just assumed everyone else had become more conservative with me because that's always how it happened. And as I've got older, in fact, the opposite. Most people are actually on social issues becoming more liberal, more left wing. And that suddenly occurred to me uh, as I hit my mid 30s that there was actually something quite different happening, changing our culture. 
And the more I looked at it in actual studies, and both in the States and Britain, the old thing about uh, people becoming more conservative in their 30s is, is no longer happening. I mean, there's a big change. So the kind of spur for this was finally, I'd worked in this book for a while, then when 2017 came and, the, the, you know, the Corbyn lost, but Tories did so badly amongst young people, and not just young people, but quite middle-aged people our age, and they're, well, younger middle-aged. Younger and prime of life sort of time. Uh, prime of life people, um, yeah. and they were all still completely repulsed by uh, conservatism. They didn't like Corbyn either, and he managed to basically sabotage my book by massively losing two years later. <laughs> but um, I suppose the essence of conservatism is, uh, I suppose it's a, it's, a, it's a mixture between a sort of psychological makeup and a sort of political ideology that dates back to Edmund Burke, who I come back to. So it's a mixture of that and a sort of predisposition towards a certain, I suppose pessimism is a, is a core part, uh, a belief in uh, the limits of human nature. You know, I start with Cassandra, the ancient Greek myth said, you know, by the way, the, the Greeks are going to destroy us. Don't, don't listen to that idea. They don't want peace. It's all disaster. <laughs> and, you know, she was right. And so since then, you know, pessimists have always been quite annoying to be around, but they're often quite right. So right down to the modern age, you know, from the French Revolution to communism, and to a certain extent, modern progressive left ideas, which I think are, have a utopian... Well, but let me pick you up on that, because that's weird, isn't it? Because I, we all have a tendency to be a bit pessimistic. But actually, but look at the reality of what we've done. I don't want to be Whiggish here, buddy, but we are sitting in a city with an unimaginable quality of life compared to 200 years ago, unimaginably low... Uh, young men, sadly, still too often stabbing each other three, but unimaginably small numbers compared to you know medieval Oxford, famously from that study. Um, healthcare outcomes, extraordinary. We're flying around the world. I mean, there are big problems, but you can see... You can't say that pessimism... People have been right... If you're pessimistic in 1780, the whole world's going shit. That's not entirely accurate, is it? Uh, no, of course. I mean... It comes down to, I mean, Burke was the original pessimist. Pe Burke was pessimistic about the French Revolution. He turned out to be completely right. And there are times when pessimism is needed because natural human disposition is to is towards optimism in some sense, you know, because otherwise life would just be unbearable. And to go back to the Greek myth, you know, the Pandora and Pandora's box, like hope leaves last because we all need hope. That's why we embark on on great visions and projects. And that's why you need conservatives, pessimists say, actually, I don't think that's a very good idea. You know, I don't think over the beheading the king and just starting this from completely from scratch is a great idea. So it's the Whigs, the Whig history is obviously, I mean, you're a Whig and there's you know, nothing wrong with that. And you're going from, you know, barbarism and sort of medievalism towards this great new up sunny uplands. Um, the conservative, I suppose, would say, well, once we become wealthy, yes, we become more liberal. That's the direction of travel. I mean, and I think that's the major driver of why we've become more liberal since the 60s. We're just much, much more wealthy. Okay. Um, I would say it goes that direction rather than the other way around. Okay, let, can we, let's park social liberalism for a second. Uh, and I want to get back to like, so the political conservatism. So your Burke, your, your, uh, the idea that time-hallowed institutions are better than the ones that we can just dream yeah. up on the back of fag packet and Costa. Yeah. Um, what is interesting about the modern world is is that Trump and Johnson are not conservatives, right? I mean, in that, by that definition, are they? I mean, they're just burn it all down, double the national debt. I mean, they're kind of... Isn't that part of the problem of the even the of the words that we're using now? I would say, I mean, ugh, Boris is probably more of a Whig than anything. I might mean, say he's a liberal conservative. Trump is more, I mean, he's such a psychologically interesting person that it's hard to say. But he has a certain uh, revolutionary aspect to yeah. it. It's a kind of revolutionary conservatism, which is, I think, uh, this is what I deal in later chapters, when sort of institutions, institutions are core to conservatives, but when they tend to move to the left, institutions become sort of captured by liberals, and that's what happens in the English-speaking world. Most of our high institutions are overwhelmingly 
liberal, they would vote Remain. Everyone would tend to be Democrat in the States and um, left-leaning over here. Then conservatives tend to become, anti-institutions become kind of unmoored, they become sort of revolutionary conservatives, which is a bit of what populism is about, especially in Trump's thing. I mean, Trump and it, the whole Trumpism thing is a partly about sort of burning down the whole institutions. It's because they're just infested with... This, that doesn't um, feel very Birkin, though, does it? No, that's not. But that's not very Birkin, and that's that. That sort of forms a split in conservative thought because you know some conservatives are more the status quo ones, and this came in Brexit as well. So I started off as quite pro-Brexit beforehand because I the idea of national sovereignty. But as it gone on, there came sort of the division amongst a lot of conservatives because I'm more of a status quo conservative, and I always think, well, however bad things are, whoever follows is probably going to be even worse. And once they start to become, you sort of have this sort of radical populist talk of, you know, attacking Goldman Sachs, that sort of unnerves me, because I just think these guys are sort poor of... poor guys. Yeah. But I think, you, have, you, know, you might not think... like them, but they're institutions, and they're, the alternative is going to be worse, right? So I, some, so... Of, some of the Brexiteers are sort of status quo conservatives, but some of them are actually quite, you know, radical, revolutionary, want a new I know. thing. I, so I, that I, is the kind of contradiction. I was a bit, I was a Remainer, right? And I'm walking around going, I, I feel like the only conservative in the room. I'm walking around a country that's one of the richest countries in the world, has achieved a, a level of peace from an active insurgency that was going on in part of this country until the 1990s, um, where there's work to do, but living standards are one of the highest in the world. It, people like living here. Okay. People satisfaction index is really high. Why are we why are we torching it all? Like you know, it's right, a, a bunch of small C conservative remainers. Both sides, in a way, think they, they're trying to stop a revolutionary change. I mean, both Brexiteers will say like, "We want our country back" because all the changes that have happened to our country. Well, curiously, Remainers always say, "I want my country back," and I think that's something to do with the difference of the psychology of the two. But they both talked exactly. You know, the way that UKIP voters talked in twenty eleven is how a lot of Remainers talk in twenty eighteen. You know, why have these guys changed everything? Everything's going fine, right? So. Um, okay, so I mean, it's often in politics, people think don't realise the other side are actually thinking similar things about them that they're thinking of. So, um, and that's kind of paradox of our politics. So do you think that people that were um, conservatives, after, so from Burke onwards, um, so you've got the Duke of Wellington in the 1820s going, the British Constitution is perfect. He stood up in the House of Commons and it ended his premiership. Um, because it was what had we have inherited, it seems to work, let's not smash it up. Do you think, from the title of your book, do you think Conservatives are sort of destined to lose out to this natural optimism and naivety and, and utopianism that, that the rest of us all have? I think it... I don't know. I think it comes and goes. And some, some issues, things move back. Uh, I mean, I think with education, when I was growing up, education was very progressive, much radical, and that's moved back a lot. And on that issue, uh, progressives have sort of conceded. I mean, in the state, particularly the issues of crime... Um, have gone back a little bit. You know, in the 60s, everyone had very liberal ideas about, you know, we just put fewer people in prison, everything we find. I mean, almost no one in the States really believes that now. Um, I think another issue is the idea of, of human nature, which has been very influenced in the late 20th century by uh, blank slate ideas, which is behind a lot of progressivism that were basically all formed by, uh, the, you know, the environment around us rather than our genes. I think that's coming unstuck a lot. I sort of allude to that, but it's sort of outside my area of science, so I don't really want to get stuck into it. But, I mean, that's the Rousseau kind of idea that we're all, um, you know, victims of society. I think that's swinging back as well. So some conservative ideas do win out, but I think the main problem is because liberalism tends to correlate with um, openness, which also, so obviously the art, that's the main reason why the arts will always be left of centre. Now, since the days of Shelley, the arts has been, particularly, has been 
very sort of you know left left wing, and so this, the liberal story gets told much better you know in plays, in novels, in films. So their sort of story is the one that sort of gets remembered by the conservatives. I mean, look at the, you know the idea that our sixties, even though the liberals in the states sort of basically lost most of the arguments, like you know people voted Nixon, most people hated, and the word liberal became a dirty word over there. All the films we remembered, all the plays, basically tell the liberal narrative, right? No, there aren't any. I mean, maybe like from that period, Death Wish is the only like conservative film there is, but that came at a period of huge fear about crime, so that was unusual. But when you look, I don't want to be all panglossian, but when when you look at the last two hundred years since Burke, um, our conservatives can can they, what, what is the point of conservatives? They, they can sl- they can warn and slow the pace of change, but ultimately, it's hard to think of a field in which they've successfully. I guess you could argue that their conservatives, like someone like Peel, is somebody who respects the past, tries to bring, is up for reform and change, but will, but with a heavy, with a sort of duty obligation to bring the best bits of the past with them. Sure, I mean, I wouldn't say conservatism is lost. I mean, Britain is the most conser- politically conservative in the true sense that our constitution is pragmatic. It's make do. It's it's and that's and that's why any. It's what we've done before. Yeah. So while the the constitutions of other states like France are basically theoretical, they're utilitarian, and they are sort of unconservative. And well, the British state has been fantastically successful the last two hundred years. So it's a sort of argument for um, conservative views, I and mean, not just compared to the terrible disasters of communism and fascism and all these other kind of things, but even even you know the French example. I mean, unfortunately, now the British state seems to be going through a sort of a crisis point because we don't know. You know, it's all been a sort of gentleman's agreement up to this point, and now we don't know what's going on. Now the gentlemen have left the room. But, you know, Britain has been conservatively ruled, and, I mean, even our sort of... Uh, even our Labour tradition is very small-c conservative, and was until... Uh, Attlee was a kind of yeah, co- co- conservative and, figure. Yeah, and then yeah. a lot of former Labour voters are sort of very nostalgic about that idea of the small-c sort of social conservatism of Labour. And yet, and yet Britain has been kind of transformed beyond all recognition from 100 years ago, right? So... So you, you concert, like you're, you're comfortable with the president. You don't wish that we were living in a sort of Edwardian social setting. Or I mean, what? no, I, I mean, because you know, nothing beats medical technology. Nothing beats uh, dentistry. Dentistry, dating apps. You know, very useful. Infant mortality is a third of what it was even when I was growing up. So I mean, there are there are huge changes and progress. But I don't think these necessarily depend on liberal ideas. Liberal ideas, I think, tend to come from them because when um, we're less when we're more comfortable and less fearful, we tend to become naturally more liberal. I mean, one of the interesting things is, one of the theories, I mean, I don't go into it because it's like with psychology, so many of the, the ideas are now being blown apart. But um, you know, one of the theories was that is to do with sort of germs and the more susceptible to germs we are, the more conservative, because the more sort of fearful we are of outsiders and things. And so as, as all our germs have been defeated over the 20th century, we become much more liberal. So that will test the theory the next few weeks if, if things get really terrible how did hitler's sexuality shape his worldview why did the black death lead to the rise of the witch trials and what are some of the sauciest scandals involving kings and queens at hampton court i don't know about you but this is the history i want to hear about if you do too then join me kate lister every tuesday and friday to find out the answers to all of these questions and more Listen to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. 
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you're using messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high-quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes, and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos, and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Um, Do you feel that to be a conservative is to be on the you know on the why do you feel it's on the wrong side of history is it because of the dominance of liberal storytellers and artists and creatives yes i, th- I think you know the quotes from barack obama he's talking about Al- al-qaeda who obviously i'm not comparing the, the, the conservative movement to but I, you know i just list all the if you just wanted to list all the cool people in politics and you know the films and in culture generally they tend to be on the left because they're are better at telling a story and better at being cool. So, but it's also a reference to the basic Christian elements of of the left. So you know, modern liberalism is basically a heresy of of uh, Christianity, and lots of people have, have come up this analogy up to Tom Holland's brilliant book about Christianity. So they've inherited this Christian idea that things are going better until the final days when you know all good will triumph over evil and. Communists believe this, and liberalism in its modern form sort of believes this, and that's why they talk about the wrong side of history, about conservatives. Their, their argument is like, we're going to win, you're going to look like a big in the future, whatever your argument is, you know, you're going to be the loser. Um, and that's where you come to, oh, why do you have so many women in your cabinet? You know, Trudeau's argument, oh, it's because it's 2015, it's that sort of argument, it's, oh, it's just the current year, so we have to be progressive. So I'm sort of doing that sort of tongue-in-cheek, say, okay, yeah, right, we're the baddies, that's... That's our role in this story. But I think it's not an entirely fair one. I remember Lord Salisbury, who was a famous Conservative uh, Prime Minister, who Great said... Man. Well, I, I thought you might be a fan. And he goes, it's best... Given that when you do things, they're likely to go wrong, it's best not doing anything at all. Yeah. But isn't that, that's Conservative from a point of view of an extraordinarily wealthy man at the apogee of British political power, which was itself at the apogee of its own kind of imperial domination. So isn't there a problem... With conservatives, and it sort of depends. It very much depends. What, I mean, well, I said, but all politics, where you're sitting. I mean, it's uh, of course. Yeah. Uh, I think he has certain. I don't know. I mean, Salisbury, one of the things. I don't know if I like him ironically or if it's now non-ironically. Um, but I think his his thing about you know change is always for the worse. Is uh, I mean, again after the referendum, I felt this like, you know, how much 
worse would it have been if we had not done that? I mean, that's that's my view of a lot of things, especially uh, innovation in politics. A lot of the time we could just, like, let's do nothing and things will, you know, be better. But isn't it funny, like, am I making the same mistake Salisbury made? Like, am I saying, oh, well, the modern world's brilliant, and in 200 years' time they'll laugh at us because they think, look at those idiots, they were still living with chronic, you know, massive um, social inequality, and they had poor health outcomes, they had mental health problems. So shouldn't we, shouldn't we be trying more actively? I mean, why am I right about Remain, and why was Salisbury right at that time? Because it, it looks absurd to us now. Night, late 19th century Britain was in, you know, need of dire reform and... and, and uh, and and de- and develop. Yeah, but you, me- you measure a society by what it's inherited. I think. I mean, and so people, the Victorians. This is Victorian it, it, Britain is always used as an example of how terrible it was. But you know, look at the society the Victorians inherited. It was appalling, and the one they left behind was incredibly improved. I mean, it was so much better in every way. They'd managed to reduce all the bad indices of life, um, and made a much um, much healthier, happy society. And that was essentially a pretty conservative one. Um, so I think you have to just judge people by what they inherit, you know, so that they can do the best they can. Um, I mean, and I mean, I think there are lots of progressive ideas. I think in the future, people hundred years might laugh at a lot. But I mean, the fact is, I don't even dare about laugh about them now yeah. because <laughs> in the same way, don't in the sixteenth century, don't laugh at the church. But. Have you got any examples of conservative politicians you admire who who? In, it left better situations behind the inheritance. Oh, Kenneth Clark, definitely. I mean, everyone in my generation got a job because he was a good... But, you know, he's um, a slightly controversial figure, I suppose, these days. He's divide, divisive between because of that issue. You know, he was never going to agree with his party. I mean, the interesting thing about um, politics is, you know, we always think at the time, oh, these who are these sort of pygmies. I remember in the mid-90s, everyone thought that our politicians, oh, they're all idiots. And now they're looking back, they seem like giants compared to people yeah. now. But maybe in that 30th time when, who knows? Well, the, Ed Miliband, the Ed Miliband fan club is re- re- in resurgence. Isn't Miliband it? might be back, you never know. So things can always get worse. That's my message. <laughs> things can get worse. Uh, but what I find fascinating about conservatism as it's used on the internet now and in North America and liberalism is the words have almost detached any kind of meaning like to be conservative in North America is to be kind of um, have strong views about women's reproductive rights and gender identification like why are these things and and yet not really care about smashing up constitutional norms like is that a thing is that a problem for you like the words are the definitions going going, is it impossible to write this book surely I don't know I think I mean abortion is a, I mean America is much more religious than Britain abortion is a big issue I think it's a genuine conservative issue if you if you believe that I suppose I mean abortion is an interesting one because it became it's the one kind of cultural issue in, in America where the rights actually haven't lost like they maintain the same state in popular opinion the popular opinion you know issue on that, beliefs on that have not changed over like 30 40 years while on every single other issue conservatives have sort of hemorrhaged support and you know the, the liberals have basically won. Um, generally, I mean, conservatism is, is. I mean, all politics is basically an alliance between lots of disparate groups, right? So, in the states for a while, it was a kind of mixture of sort of Reaganite, small states, you know, economic liberals, and these social conservatives. And that's with Trump has sort of smashed that up. He's, there's a sort of shift going on now and there. Uh, it's been called the Great Realignment. I don't know who coined that phrase, but I think it's a great one. And I think, I mean, the same things happen in Britain, basically. You see the Conservative parties becoming much more working class. We don't really have the same social conservatism because we don't really have the same amount of religion. 
But, you know, the conservative, the right wing party is becoming much more economically statist and culturally conservative, while the left wing party becomes much more em economically like right wing, while being socially liberal. And that, that party becomes the party basically of the elites, just as the Democrats now have all the wealthiest districts in the states. So, you know, Trump is is sort of a conservative, but he's a sort of populist conservative. I mean, you know, it's hard to talk about political ideology with him because he's not, I mean, I don't think he's read a book before. So, I mean, he's not. He wants everyone to watch Sunset Boulevard and Gone with the Wind. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, well, I mean, so this is where the comparisons of Boris, so I think, are, you know, not fair because Bor Boris Johnson is whatever his sins. He, you know, he does think about things. He, he's well read. He does have an ideology, I think. And you know, I think his London mayor, time as mayor, was probably his truest ideology. I think he's a sort of liberal conservative. To a certain extent, he's pragmatic, so he thinks this is the way things are going, and that's... And that's so, so what's the big realignment? So the great realignment is now between... Is it is it that um, so Theresa May hinting at it and Donald Trump talking about globalists? Is it is this idea of people that are willing to accept these gigantic uh, changes in terms of movement of people... Right, so it's about, ideas, pan pan national culture. It's about global. I mean, it's globalization versus you know nationalism. Those are the, that's the big, that is the big divisive point. Where in the past it might have been economics. I mean, class was the big issue. It was you know in the past the British politics was out a sort of middle class alliance between liberals and conservatives opposed to a sort of socialist working class. And in 1945, people in Britain voted incredibly strictly on class lines. The overwhelming majority of working class people vote Labour. Most middle-class people voted Tory. Now that's completely changed around. Uh, more working-class people vote Tory and, and more middle-class... You know, if you go to nice areas of London now, everyone has a Labour flag outside them. And you can predict someone's um, opinion. And just as if you go to many, you know, young, young working-class guys in particular will vote for the Tory party because politics is about identity. It's essentially... It's a kind of continuation of religion that, almost. But know. that is a problem for the conservative narrative though, isn't it? Because then if the conservative big C is just not being... I mean, what what if it is just re about reimposing um, movement of... You know, reimposing barriers to trade and, and movement of people and ideas and students? I mean, that this is something that Britain... if it, Britain stretching all the way back to the 17th century has been a sort of entrepot of trade and ideas and things going on and the armies going off concrete. Sure, but I mean, so free movement like, of people is a very recent... Britain has never been... No, but no, very, London was always this like incredibly dynamic city full of immigrants, full of people. It's so, always had very small numbers of immigrants relative to post ninety seven. I mean, that is a new thing. That is no, no, the I, modern yeah, world. So. Sure, no, I know, but okay. So then you're so. The, but if if the remedy, quote unquote, to that is to is to build quite a different kind of British state, doesn't that doesn't feel very conservative, though, does it? I mean, it's not. No, I, I mean, it depends what you mean by conservatism. I would say. There's a split, right? So conserv there's the conservative paradox. I think it was David Willits. I mean, all ideologies have complete paradox art because people want everything right so he's saying that the free the free market uh sort of neoliberal economics is you know i don't like the phrase but that's what's used they do sort of destroy everything conservatives hold dear i mean they make change they make radical change everything becomes um different and this is so if you go back to all those radical movements like the luddites they were basically conservative they didn't want change they wanted to keep their old jobs they didn't want this um mechanization so under Thatcher, Britain became far, far more liberal because the city of London became dominant. And there's nothing more liberal or liberalising than finance. It's like the free movement of money. If you go into financial worlds now, you know, um, you know, briefly, I, for various reasons, worked at a finance company. And these, you know, they were just devastated by Brexit. They're all 
I mean, for financial and emotional reasons, right? Because they're, yeah, they are an international community. They have overwhelmingly liberal values. There's like one Brexiteer in the company and he was like in his 60s. Um, and it was considered sort of like a darling eccentric because it was so unusual. I mean, that is, that is the most liberal world imaginable and that's all down to Thatcher's revolution. So that's the kind of contradiction at the heart of conservatism. And I think Brexit is going to bring huge difficulties to that because there are two visions of Brexit, right? There's the, the Whig vision, which is like we're sort of buccaneering. There's a lot of, you know, pirate talk about we're going to go on the high seas and, you know, and basically it's the 19th century liberal vision of free trade. Well, then there's a sort of more Tory Brexit, which is basically like, you know, it's like people want to live and retire to Hobbiton, to the Shire. They want like a... Their yeah, own it's like, community, it's like, their it's own like the 1945 Labour consensus. Exactly, right? So so stuff it, made in Britain. Stuff. The, the fact that, you know, the, the 1945 Labour were very Eurosceptic and for very similar reasons, and they would fit perfectly in with modern day, the sort of, I don't know, the Red Wall, new Tories who are all going that way. So these two visions of, um, of Brexit, right? It will take a very skilled politician to bridge those and... and satisfy both camps i don't know how it's going to happen yeah so okay so we like so we're getting caught up with contemporary politics so coming back essentially to what conservatism is and why you are one um what what is what is it so it's in essence it's a sense that the world is fine as it is change may bring catastrophic results right no i mean that like conservatism so oh wait to go back to the i started beginning with a basic sort of description of what it is and the main difference people have between conservatives, what they misunderstand is they mix it up with what um, Jerry Muller, the American academic, calls orthodoxy. So orthodoxy means like nothing should change because it's a preordained sort of almost always a religious reason. Like this is how things are. You must not question that. So conservatism has always embraced change to a certain extent. I mean, then Burke says, you know, society that doesn't change is unable to um, improve itself. And um, conservatives just believe like institutional proof so if an institution is there it's the it's giving some proof that it has a reason for it's there so the burden of proof is on the people to change it. i mean this is why like blair was so disliked by the sort of a certain section of conservative thoughts because he loves sort of the meddling instincts as um you, you know they wanted to I know, get rid of the, yeah get rid of uh, the house of lords change of things like and you know like it's fine like it's been there for a long time so like why change it because of your you know, your first priority is this doesn't make sense in theory, so I have to change it. So conservatives believe that the burden of proof on, on people changing stuff has to be, well, you have to prove why your your you know new world is going to be better because a lot of the time that's not going to be the case, right? Um, and just the general principle, you know, like again, I don't want to go into biology because a sort of scientifically literate conservative using those analogies is always a bad idea, but. You know, in evolution, small, small, tiny mutations are usually often an advantage. That's how evolution works. But huge mutations are almost always terrible. They catastrophic results. Huge change, by its definition in history, has always been bad, almost always. While I think the small, tiny, incremental changes are, are the way forward. So it's basically, I mean, someone said, you know, conservatism is basically liberalism with the speed limit on, so... <laughs> I love that. Well, thank you very much indeed. Your book is Small Men on the Wrong Side of History. Thank you. Thanks very much, Ed West. I feel we have the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book and one pen can change the world. He tells us what is possible, not just in the pages of history books, 
but in our own lives as well. I have faith in you. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, bit of a favour to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money. Makes sense. But if you could just do me a favour, it's for free. Go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you give it a five-star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review, purge yourself, give it a glowing review. I'd really appreciate that. It's a tough world out there. Law of the jungle out there. And uh, I need all the fire support I can get. So that will boost it up the charts. It's so tiresome. But if you could do it, I'd be very, very grateful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.